Welcome to On Mission, the teaching ministry of the Mission Church in Urbandale, Iowa. We exist to love God by loving others, leading them to become fully functioning followers of Jesus Christ. Well, as you know, we're making our way through seven letters that Jesus dictated to the Apostle John, and uh, the Apostle John wrote them down and then sent them to the individual churches that are being addressed. Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7 is the letter to the church in Ephesus who possessed many positive qualities, and Jesus recognized those. Um, and, uh, but there was still a problem with them. They had lost their love. Their service for Christ and for those in their community had become cold and calculated and perfunctory. And Jesus called them then to repent and to return, to return to the works that they had done at first. And so he was, I'm sure, hopeful, and he's inviting them to do that, but also warned them that if they didn't, that he would come to them, he would remove their lampstand, which literally means he would remove their church from its place. And when we look back in history, it would seem as though perhaps they did not repent because there is no Christian church remaining in that ancient area where they originally were. Smyrna, uh, Pergamum, there still is a Christian witness there, but not in Ephesus as it relates to where the ancient city was. Revelation chapter 2 verses 8 through 11 is the letter to the church in Smyrna, a church that received nothing but praise. How would you like to be among uh, those to receive nothing but praise from the Lord? They suffered tribulation, they suffered poverty, they suffered uh, uh, imprisonment and the threat of death, yet they remained faithful unto death And as Jesus talked about, uh, he would give them the crown of life, and it is theirs eternally. So today, we're in Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17, and it brings us to the church in Pergamum. And the church in Pergamum is a church that was caught in compromise. Now, before we talk about that, I want to just catch us up quickly on the context, a little bit of context of where they were and what life was like for them. Pergamos, as a city, actually continues on, though today it is known as Bergama. It's located about 70 miles north of Smyrna, which is now known as Izmir. Although the city Pergamum was not a seaport city, nor was it on the major trade routes. Nonetheless, it was at the top of the list of prominent cities in Asia Minor because, in fact, at that time, Pergamum was the capital of Asia. Like the other two cities that we've looked at, uh, Pergamum was up to date for its time. It was widely known for its library, which, by the way, was second only to the library of Alexandria. So they were actually bigger than the one in Ephesus that we looked at uh, originally. As it relates to the volumes, they had like over 200,000 handwritten volumes in the library there. Speaking of handwriting, Pergamum is noted as a city that invented parchment or vellum made from the skins of sheep, goats, and calves. It was the material of choice in that day to use for writing. Uh, The other cities, I I didn't catch that there were any uh, 
places of higher learning like a university, but Pergamum had its own university there. Like Ephesus and Smyrna, Pergamum uh, boasted many temples to the pagan pantheon of gods. There were the standard gods that we've already heard of, right? Zeus and Roma and Dionysius. But, but Pergamum also had a temple to Athena. Woo! That was, that, okay. Athena, I won't try to do that too loudly, uh, who is the goddess of wisdom, of craft, and of warfare. They also had a temple to a god named, I knew I would, Escalpleus. That's the best I can do. Who is a Greco-Roman god of healing, of truth, and of prophecy. Like the other cities of Asia Minor, Pergamum was a regional center for the emperor worship cult. Pergamum had many different temples over the years to the various Roman emperors. They had one that they had dedicated to Augustus. That's the first time we've heard his name brought up. I don't have a picture of his temple because I guess it doesn't exist. And then there was Trajan later on uh, that there was a great temple that was built uh, for him. Now, I want to just kind of bring one little thing out here relating to the emperor worship cult. I've talked about this already, that in, in Ephesus and in Smyrna, there was this requirement to offer a sacrifice of incense to the emperor as a sign of loyalty and as a sign of worship. But in those two cities, it only had to be done once a year, which actually kind of let the majority of Christians fly under the radar because it only happened once a year. But in Pergamum, it was a daily requirement. And so that would make it much harder to hide the fact that you would not recognize the emperor as one that you would call Lord. And so those abstaining from the practice would be much easier to identify. So this is the, uh, a brief little context relating to Pergamum as a city, also relating uh, to the circumstances that Christians found themselves in as they lived in that city. So let's go ahead and read the letter that Jesus dictated to John for them, and we begin in verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality." So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone, that no one knows except the one who receives it. 
So as we begin with verse 12, we see that Jesus continues to use the different ways of identifying himself according to the way that he originally identified himself to the apostle John. To the believers in Pergamum, he introduced himself as the one with the two-edged sword. Now really, there's little doubt about what Jesus is referring to when he uses that phrase, a two-edged sword. The apostle Paul refers to it as the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17. The author of Hebrews was inspired to describe God's Word as living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul, of spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intents of the heart, Hebrews 4, 12. Specifically with Hebrews 4.12, there's a lot of meaty truths there that would take some some serious study if we were going to mine out of that all that could be uh, obtained. But truth point number one this morning kind of summarizes what I want us to carry away from that scripture that we just read, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. There's two parts. Truth point number one says that God's word is like a two-edged sword in that on one side it has the power to cut away the curse of condemnation of sin, bringing a sinner to a place of reconciliation with God and give them eternal life. So that's one side of the sword that we know is true of the word of God. But God's word is like a two-edged sword, secondly, in that on the other side it has the power to judge the unrepentant sinner as hopelessly lost condemning them to separation from God in eternal death. The two-edged sword of the word of God. The message is clear to the church in Pergamum. You can follow your Lord Jesus or you can remain as you are. Either way, the two-edged sword of the word of God will cut your transgression away bringing restoration or will cut away God's grace leaving you to suffer the consequence of your transgressions and I believe that that is the truth they had to face and it's the truth that we must face as well God is Yahweh is a forgiving God because of what Jesus Christ has accomplished for us but he is also a wrathful God to those who turn their back on Jesus and go their own way. And so we re- have to realize it cuts both ways. And so we find that here in the text that the word does cut two ways. And one's response to Jesus' call to repent, whether to repent unto salvation or to repent unto a next step of sanctification, determines for the individual which way the word is going to cut. As we come to verse 13 we find that the church had some good things going for it. But before Jesus um, offers the commendation for them, he makes an interesting comment about where they are located. And I wanted to talk just a little bit about that. In verse 13, he says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. That's an interesting comment. I know where you dwell. You dwell where Satan's throne throne is you know you might be surprised at the number of people both inside and outside of the church 
who believe that Satan's throne is in hell. And they think that he rules his evil empire from there. I'm here to tell you that is absolutely false. If you think that Satan has a throne in hell, you're, you're picking that up from some other place, not from the Bible. If you think he spends any time there right now, you're picking that up from somewhere else, not from the Bible. Truth point number two, there are no thrones in hell. Believe me, there are no thrones in hell. There is only darkness. There's only fear. There's only torment. There's only loneliness and desperation. That's what exists in hell. There are no thrones for anyone there. And currently, Satan does not spend even one minute of any day there in hell. Apostle Peter tells us that Satan is roaming around on the earth. He is seeking whom he may devour. As we think about that, I want us to think about this. Listen carefully to the whole thing. Uh, You're not going to find Satan at the local crack house. You're not going to find Satan at the local adult bookstore. Now, his products are there, but he's not going to be there. You're not going to find him at the casino either. No, let me tell you, Satan's favorite hangouts are the local New Testament Bible-believing church. He hangs out in the halls of government, and he hangs out in the halls of education. That's where you're going to find him. And basically what we can say is wherever you find institutions that God has created to manage or to advance his kingdom and his creation, that is where you will find Satan. And when you find him, he will be presenting himself in the most respectable of ways. He presents himself as an angel of light to deceive people into trusting him so that he can sow the seeds of sin and death in an attempt to promote himself and to do damage to the work that God is doing. Make no mistake, he's not in hell. He's right out. He may even be here today. Now, let me say this. Satan is not omnipresent. He can only be in one place at one time. Of course, he has his his legion of demonic fallen beings that carry out his will and his work but uh, you're going to find him in the upper crust places of the world not in hell now with that in mind Jesus referred to Pergamum as um, the capital city of Asia they are the capital city of Asia as the place where Satan has his throne what does he mean by that Well, time doesn't really allow me. I could lead you down quite a few rabbit trails, good rabbit trails that would take us all over the place and open up all kinds of doors for us. But let me just take us down this one trail. The city of Pergamum, as we know, was overrun with pagan temples. They were overrun with pagan temples. In fact, the temple to Zeus was way up high on this mountain precipice. And what you're seeing on the screen there is as, as a recreation of something that was up there high on the mountain. And at his temple, uh, there was this huge altar, kind of like a, a throne that stood 18 feet high, and between being on the, 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 the hillside and the size of it itself loomed large over the city. 
That very well could be what he is talking about. There's also the temple of um, the guy whose name I'm having a hard time pronouncing, uh, the, the God of healing. Uh, you find him, that's a, a replication of him, uh, featured with a staff with this large snake. Is it not up here? It's supposed to be up here. Why aren't we up here? Okay, we'll come back to it in a little bit. There it is. Fantastic. Thank you. So anyway, you have this, 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 this staff with this large snake uh, going around it. Uh, needless to say, uh, the city was a place where satanic and demonic power was free to flow, not to mention the heavy presence of the Roman emperor worship that directly threatened the Christian community who could not participate. And it's in this very dark, very satanic, very demonic environment that the church is then praised by Jesus as holding fast to and not being ashamed of his name. You know, it's one thing to stand for Jesus when it's easy and you've got a whole crowd of people who agree with you. It's pretty easy. But it's difficult when everything around you is dark and satanic and demonic and, and, and filled with idolatry and immorality. It becomes very difficult. But these people, according to Jesus, were not ashamed of his name. They wore his name proudly and they clearly identified themselves in the public as Christians. So that's one of the commendations that he offers. The second commendation that he offers to them is that despite all of the pressure to the contrary, they did not deny the faith. They did not deny the faith. Actually, Jesus says it there, uh, they did not deny my faith. That's interesting comment. Might lead someone to think that Jesus had his own personal faith. Uh, Jesus does not have faith. He doesn't need faith because he's the author of faith, right? So when Jesus says they did not deny my faith, he is referring there to the inspired truths and teachings and doctrine about him and about the kingdom of God. Jude verse 3 speaks of faith in that way, saying that this faith this collection, the, the canon, the, the scriptures, the truth, the doctrine uh, was once for all delivered to the saints. And so on the positive side of things, uh, the church was not in hiding. And they were not denying who they were. They were not denying what they believed. Not even in the face of one of their own, Antipas, who was martyred because of his witness for Jesus Christ. Now we would probably want to know something about Antipas, but really there's nothing to know about him because this is the only place in Scripture that we have a record of him. So we can't go beyond what the Scripture says. But what the Scripture says of him is this, that he was a faithful witness. He was a faithful witness. I want to ask you, are you a faithful witness? Are you a faithful witness? He was a faithful witness even unto to death and according to revelation chapter 2 verse 11 we can know then that he is a recipient of the crown of life and so standing firm in the midst of a supercharged satanic demonically influenced community the believers in pergamum as a whole 
did not fold in their association with Christ, nor did they fold as it relates to his word. So verses 14 and 15 get us to the problem, though. Despite the fact that the church in Pergamon was commended for their testimony of faith in Christ, Jesus had something of a criticism to level against them, and his criticism is focused on the church's toleration of compromise. The compromise that was within the church there had to do with false doctrine, false teaching. The church itself did not deny Christ. They did not shrink back from his truth as a whole. Nonetheless, they were tolerating within their ranks those who held to the teaching of Balaam and to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So at this point, I need to kind of stop and take you somewhere else so that you can understand something of what is being said when it says they were, they were tolerating those in their ranks who were teaching this doctrine of Balaam. To discover what that's all about, we go back to the book of Numbers. Numbers chapters 22 through 31. <laughs> that's a lot of chapters, but you've got to go through all of that to get the full picture. So I'm going to break it down to you very simply and I encourage you to read that later on because it is fascinating. I mean, I'm leaving out a lot of details that you would enjoy uh, getting to know. Anyway, Balaam. Balaam was a Gentile prophet slash seer. And it's fascinating when you read the text to find that he had some kind of a relationship with Yahweh. I don't understand it. It wasn't the kind that we would approve of, I don't think. And yet he did. The text is clear that he did. He was hired by Balak, who was king of Moab. And that's going to be important. We're going to look at that in just a moment. And so he was hired by this king to bring a curse against the Israelites because they had recently defeated the Amorites and had taken their land. And now they were moving closer to the land of Moab and the king was highly concerned that if, if, if something wasn't done, they would do to him and his land what they had done to the Amorites. And so he's looking for a way to circumvent that so that it doesn't happen. Another little aside, we'll get back to that story in a moment. So who are the Moabites? That's the thing I want us to look at right now. Genesis chapter 19. Uh, Abraham, you remember him, don't you? Say yes. Okay, if you do remember him. He had a nephew whose name was Lot. That's right. And Lot had settled his family in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. You know something about that. Well, Yahweh had decided that he was going to destroy those cities because of their sexual perverse, per perversity, uh, not the least of which was homosexuality. And he sent two angels to warn Lot and then ultimately to drag him and his family out of the city because God was about to rain fire and brimstone down on the city and completely destroy it. Well, that's exactly what happened. 
And after the, the destruction of the cities, uh, Lot's daughters devised a plan to get their father to impregnate them. Why? Because they were afraid that if it, they didn't have children, then ultimately their family line would disappear. And so this was their plan. And uh, with an abundance of alcohol, <laughs> they achieved their goal. The daughters who were referred to in the scripture only as the older or younger daughter each gave birth to a son fathered by their father. And the older daughter's son was named Moab. And the younger was named Ammon. And both Moab and Ammon became the fathers of two people groups, one known as the Moabites and the other known as the Ammonites. Now there's a difference between the Ammonites and the uh, other group that I mentioned just a moment ago, who did I mention? The uh, Amorites. There's the Ammonites and the Amorites, and they are not the same group of people. So right now, we're focusing not on the Amorites, but we're focusing on Moab. Now we go back to Numbers. So Balak, king of Moab, now you know something about where he comes from, was afraid that what had happened to the Amorites was going to happen to him. And so he uh, gets uh, Balaam to, uh, hires him to bring a curse against Israel. Three times Balaam attempted to bring that curse. And each time God intervened, and instead of speaking a curse, uh, Balaam spoke a blessing. <laughs> and so, of course, this led to all kinds of problems between him and Balak because Balak's putting out a lot of good money to get a curse and all this prophet is doing is blessing the people he wants to curse and of course Balaam is somewhat concerned that he might have to give the money back so he has to think of some way of helping King Balak and uh, so not able to pronounce the curse Balaam eventually devises a different plan and he advises King Balak to use some of the Moabite women to sexually seduce some of the Israelite men and to lure them into the worship of their gods. Numbers chapter 25, also chapter 31, verse 16. And the reason that Balaam, Balaam advised Balak like this was because he knew if it happened that the anger of Yahweh would be kindled against his own people for their transgression. And in fact, he was right because they were successful at getting many of the Israelite men to cross over and to join in with sexual immorality and the worship of, uh, of false gods. And the Lord God sent a plague and 24,000 Israelites were killed. 24,000 Israelites lost their lives because of crossing over into this situation. So, in short, the teaching of Balaam was that there is no wrong for the people of God to engage in sexual immorality and spiritual adultery. That's ultimately what the teaching is about. Based then on Jesus' comment, we know that within the church in Pergamum that there was a group of people who were espousing this same kind of false teaching that was reminiscent of that of 
Balaam. And the way that the Nicolaitans are, are, are connected there in the text, it would seem that they had a similar teaching as well. That brings me now to truth point number three, and hopefully this will bring some clarity if there's been any lack thereof. Beyond the sins, now this is, I want you to pay careful attention to this because I really want you to understand this. Beyond the sins of immorality and idolatry being practiced by a minority in the church of Pergamum, the sin that Jesus is concerned with in this context is that of the majority who were tolerating the false teaching that led to the practice of these sins. Now, was Jesus concerned about the immorality and the idolatry? Of course he was. But that's not what he's on their back about. What he's on their back about is the fact that these Men and women who did not deny the faith and were willing to stand out publicly and say, we're Christians, we're followers of Jesus Christ, they nonetheless were allowing, they were tolerating these people in their church who were bringing this false teaching in and it was polluting people's hearts and lives. You get it? That's what that's all about. So clearly the majority were publicly standing firm in Jesus' name. And they were, as a whole, teaching and modeling established Christian doctrine. But despite their godly stand, they were compromising the purity of the church by standing idly by while others taught and modeled sins that Jesus hates to the very core of his being. Now, this is not the first time in the Bible we see this kind of thing. The Apostle Paul dealt with something very similar in the church in Corinth very quickly. There was a man in the church in Corinth. He was recognized by all the other members as being a man in good standing. And yet, he was carrying on a sexual relationship with the wife of his father. Boy, there's all kinds of sexual immorality in the Bible. But that's because there's all kinds of sexual immorality in us, right? In humanity. It exists everywhere. All right? And so it's not clear whether this incestuous relationship, whether the the husband of of the woman was still living or whether he had died, that's not clear. But what is clear is that Paul says about the sin, 1 Corinthians 5, 1, that this sin is not even tolerated among the pagans. So the church of Jesus Christ in Corinth is tolerating within their ranks a sinful practice that even the pagans they're trying to reach don't even practice as a whole. Again, the point here is not the sin of immorality and idolatry, though those are heinous and terrible and will be judged, but the point is that the majority who were not practicing the sin were nonetheless tolerating both the people and the practice in their midst. Now, as we think about a church, we have to understand that not everything that goes on in the local New Testament church is righteous, pure, and clean. Do we all understand that? That for any of us, there could be things that come up in our lives that fall outside of where we're supposed to be. 
Many times those practices are private and nobody knows. And so we just kind of go along and maybe over time we repent and get things right and hopefully that's the case. But sometimes within the local church, those sins become public. They become known. Now, we need in the church, when this happens, listen carefully, to be filled with grace and to be patient with those who might be in our ranks who are struggling with some form of sin, i.e. people who know they're in the wrong and are truly trying to grow beyond their weakness. Do you understand? There are people who are caught up in some issue. It becomes public. We all know about it. It's terrible, it's embarrassing, it's shameful. Yet, when confronted, they say, I know I'm wrong. I'm sinning. So that's good. They're confessing the truth. And they're saying, you know, I, I need help. I want help. Help me to overcome my weakness. Now, those are the kind of people that we need to be patient with and that there needs to be a grace-filled expression toward them. Am I clear about that? On the other hand, though, there are those in the wrong that become discovered and they will say, I'm not in the wrong. There's nothing wrong with what I'm doing. Which basically means that they have no intention of repenting or being held accountable. And here, when that happens... We must follow Paul's teaching to the Corinthian believers and bring ecclesiastical discipline to bear for the purpose of helping them to see their need to repent and return to a position of moral and spiritual holiness. And that is what Jesus is telling the church in Pergamum. He is telling them, you're in the wrong and you need to repent. Verse 16, the very first part of verse 16. Therefore, repent. Metaneo, meaning to change, to have a change of mind that brings about a change of behavior. That's what repentance is. Repentance isn't just saying, I'm wrong. I'm sorry. Okay, go on. No, no. Repentance is is something that causes the person to have a complete change of mind about what they're wrong about, which then leads them to turn and to begin to live in a different way than they were living before. Do we understand that? That's, that's what repentance is. All right? And Jesus is calling them to repentance. In the case of the Pergamum believers, they needed to have a change of mind. They needed to acknowledge the sin of immorality and idolatry that were going on in their ranks, and they needed to change their behavior by ceasing to tolerate it. That's the repentance they needed to have. It's pretty simple, really. See the wrong, stop the wrong. That's what Jesus is calling them to. See the wrong, stop the wrong. But you know, seeing the wrong and stopping the wrong, can I be honest with you, is completely impossible apart from the supernatural ministry of the Holy Spirit. Truly, it is. And that brings us to truth point number four. 
we can be assured that the Spirit, God's Spirit, is always ready to bring His supernatural power to bear on those who want to know about their sin and who want to repent. If, I, if I'm speaking to a brother or sister today who is caught in some sin and your sin right now is serious and it's still private, in other words, I don't know about it, the deacons don't know about it, the elders don't know about it, your spouse might not even know about it, nobody knows about it but you and God, but you truly are regretting in your heart where you are, you want to know the fullness of the sin that is in you, and you want to come before the Lord and repent. I'm here to tell you the Holy Spirit is on your side. I'm here to tell you he will always come to your rescue and help you to do that. Unfortunately, not everyone wants to know. And unfortunately, not everyone wants to repent. And so Jesus warns the church that if you will not repent, I will come to you. I will come to war against you with the sword of my mouth. <clears throat> now, I, I, I want to put these next comments to you as, as plainly and as clearly as I possibly can. Church, we have no option in the matter. It's not, are we going to be at war, but who are we going to be at war with? And I'm not talking about like Israel is at war. I'm talking about in the spiritual realm as believers. It's not if we're going to be at war, it's who are we going to be at war with. We will either side with Christ and be at war with satanic forces or we will side with sin and be at war with Christ. But there is no middle ground. There is no middle ground. Now, I like to sometimes think there is. How about you, Brett? Yeah, how about you, Adam? Uh, you guys are worthless. Anyway, <laughs> no, no. I confessed first, right? I mean, sometimes I want to deceive myself into thinking there's middle ground. But there is no middle ground. I'm either, as a believer, fighting against satanic forces, the, 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 the onslaught of sin in my life, or I'm siding with sin, allowing it to exist, and now I'm at war with Christ. And what I want to make sure we understand today is there is no middle ground. 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 21, the prophet Elijah admonished Israel, saying, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If Yahweh is God, then follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. Jesus said in Luke chapter 11, verse 23, Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters truth point number five there isn't much gray despite the fact that everybody wants to think there is those who are with christ will strive to walk with him they'll strive they'll work at it they'll strive they'll want to do it they'll find ways for accountability or help or growth or maturity or, or whatever they'll strive to walk with him and those who are not with christ will make excuses why they are justified to stay the way they are man i'm feeling uh just kind of worked up here today <laughs> 
Sorry if that's hard for you. I, I, I'm not mad. I'm not angry. Sometimes people show up. There are visitors. Why is he so angry? I'm not angry. I'm just, it's just, you know. Yeah, okay, I will. All right, so, yeah, enough of that. Verse 17 then brings us to the end of Jesus' letter to Pergamum. And we find here in verse 17 both an invitation and two promises. The invitation is, he that has an ear to hear. She that has an ear to hear. And I have to ask, who, whose voice has your ear? Let me tell you that if you're going to listen to Christ, it's going to take an intentional, conscious choice on your part multiple times a day. Because the world is constantly bombarding us with its communication. And the world's communication will be the default communication that we hear unless we take intentional steps to shut it out and to expose ourselves to the voice of Christ through his word. He that has an ear to hear, do we have ears in this church to hear what God is speaking to us individually as well as corporately? The first promise made to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. It may say receive up there, but it's I will give some of the hidden manna. Now, in this context, the one who conquers is basically one who perseveres in their faith in Jesus as Savior and Lord. 1 John chapter 5, verses 4 through 5. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Overcoming the world doesn't mean you learn to become perfect. Because on this side of the fence, that's not possible. But the one who perseveres in their faith in the Lord Jesus, walks with him, clings to him, continues in their relationship with him, they are the ones who overcome the world. And to those, Jesus said, I will give some of the hidden manna. Now, the hidden manna is a reference to that which God supernaturally fed the Israelites with, during their years of wandering, it was their physical bread of life. For the Christian, though, Jesus is our spiritual bread of life. John six thirty five. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. I believe that this manna he's talking about is that fullness of our connection and walk with Jesus. He is our bread of life. The second promise that we find in verse 17 is this. And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on it, on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Very quickly from a historical point of view, white stones in that day were used in some courts of law to identify the one who had been acquitted of their crime. So if they had been up before the court, they're acquitted, they're found innocent, they were given a white stone, that stone was their certificate, so to speak, of the judgment that had been passed. Uh, on those who received a black stone, well, then they remained and they were um, 
kept in their guilt. And certainly, there's an application there for the Christian uh, whose, whose sins have been covered by the blood of Christ. Um, we have been acquitted even though we were guilty. Because of Jesus, we are justified before God. Perhaps that's what he means by the white stone. White stones were also used as a passport to invitation-only events. Invitation only. Only those who had been given the white stone could be admitted. It's interesting that Revelation chapter 19, verses 6 through 9, speaks of an invitation-only event that's coming. It's called the marriage supper of the Lamb. Only those who are part of the body of Christ, who are known as the bride of Christ, will be invited. And so John there in chapter 19 was commanded to write, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Quite Likely, the white stone Jesus is talking about is that invitation. For those who, whose faith is in me, who persevere in their faith in me, I will give not only this hidden manna, more revelation of myself, but also the white stone of invitation to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Think about it. To be eternally nourished by Jesus, who is the bread of life, and eternally joined to him as his bride. These are promises that Jesus makes to those who have an ear to hear and a heart that is willing to respond in faith to him. And so, Christian, let's lay this down, that none of us are perfect. None of us are perfect. We all are a work in progress. Nonetheless, I have to ask, is there an area in your life right now where you're compromising with sin? You're a Christian who reads his Bible or her Bible. You're a Christian who prays. You're a Christian who serves. You're a Christian who gives. But in spite of those commendable things, there is a transgression or transgressions that are being tolerated in your life. Jesus' message to you is repent. Repent. Change your mind about the seriousness of that sin so that your life actions can change from being tainted with sin to being pure in the sight of God. And I ask all of you in the room, and I ask myself because I'm with you, I'm part of you. I do not, I'm standing above you only because of a stage, but I stand with you. I am with you. And I have to ask myself do we have an ear to hear? Do we have an ear to hear the call to repent and to respond to Christ in faith in this way? Unbelieving friend, I want to say to you, whether you're out there watching online or a year down the road watching an archive of one of our services, if you're in the overflow room or if you're here in the room, Jesus' call to you is singular. It's always the same. Turn from your sin. 
Embrace him as your Savior and Lord. He's the one that gave his life on the cross to bear your sin. He's the one who rose from the dead to bring you eternal life. His call to you is come to me. Come to me, I will not cast you out. Come to me, humble yourself, trust in me. I will give you a new heart, a new spirit, a white stone. Will you trust him? Will you trust him today? If you have questions about what all those things mean, are you willing to ask that question? Are you willing to sit down and open the Bible and see what God's Word has to say about that? My contact information is there on the screen. Like I said, it would be my email, my phone number. You can call me directly. You can text me. I will respond. And if we get together and your heart is open, I believe that Jesus will bring you across into that relationship with him or Christian he will help you to get back on the right track with him father I lift this now to you and so many things have been said and so much information has gone so quickly I I don't even know but I I just um, I trust you I trust that you're able to take the songs that have been sung today that you're able to take the scriptures that have been on the screen today that you're able to take this message from revelation today and use it to do the work in our hearts and lives that need to be done. And Lord, I don't think there's a single person in this room who doesn't need something. We all need either to believe unto salvation or to believe unto a further step of sanctification being conformed to the image of Jesus. Father, whatever our need is, I'm asking that your spirit would would work powerfully upon us and that we would be willing to hear, that we would be a people who do not shut off our ears but but have an ear to hear and then to be blessed by being received by you and walking with you in the forgiveness and the grace that is available through you, Lord Jesus. Have your way in our hearts, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This is On Mission. The Mission Church is located at 12001 Ridgemont Drive in Urbandale. To learn more about our ministry, visit our website at themissiondsm.org or call us at 515-255-2122. We gather for worship each Sunday at 10 a.m. We would be honored for you to join us. Have a blessed day, and thank you for listening to On Mission.